Week four, the comparison trap. The comparison trap. Last week, we talked about that we were not appointed for wrath, but we were appointed for life and living. But when we start to walk in the unrighteous ways that are opposite of God, we put a demand on a part of God's character called wrath. Although we were never appointed for it, as the scriptures tell us in Thessalonians, we do put a demand on that side of his character when you walk in ways that are not his ways. He says, I have laid out for you paths of righteousness. If you walk in paths of unrighteousness, then I am going to take my hand off of you because it is my very makeup and my very law that my righteousness cannot mix with unrighteousness. That is why we cannot have access to heaven unless we were made right. That's why he had to give us Jesus to make us right. That's why we could not be in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is perfect and he couldn't allow imperfect things to remain in there and have authority. He said, I've got to get you out. I have to protect you because if you eat from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, you are going to have life in a fallen state And I don't want you to have life in a fallen state. I want to get you out of the Garden of Eden so that you can eat of a new tree of life, which is the Word becoming flesh, which is my son named Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, wrath. He says we are not appointed for it, but that we can put a demand on it. Today we continue from that idea of wrath into Romans chapter 2. Paul, in talking about wrath, just got done speaking about obvious high levels of sexual morality and idolatry, idol worship, with the, talking about the Corinthians and writing this letter to the Romans about the wrath of God. Can we, there's ringing, can we take this down? And in the next chapter of the letter in Romans chapter 2, Paul opens up with this in verse 1. You may think, that you can condemn such people, talking about the Corinthians. But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. You may think you condemn such people, but you're just as bad, and you've got no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things things. As Paul points out the sin of the as, as Paul points out the sin of the most obvious, the sexual morality of the Corinthians, the high level of idol worship, he now starts t- talking to the people who are mostly good but mess up a little bit. The church. That's kind of a sarcastic comment. He starts talking to the people where, well, we got most of our stuff correct. So we're going to put our focus to the obvious people. The sexually immoral, the homosexuals. Right? The government leaders that are obviously not of God. I'm getting up in your stuff. Let's point out the drunkenness downtown Savannah. Let's point out all the obvious stuff. And Paul looks at these mostly good Christians and says, 
Don't you go congratulating yourself on your righteous behavior compared to their extreme behavior. You love to judge others, but you're doing the same things. The original text actually says the same kind of things. Because although they may not have been doing the same kind of th the same things, in other words, you may not be falling into homosexuality as pointed out in the last part of Romans chapter 1, but you are doing the same kind of things. He says you are doing the same kind of things, yet you judge them for what they do. Because when it comes down to it, sin is sin. What does sin mean? It came from an archery term meaning to miss the mark. Meaning when you shoot an arrow at a target, a miss is a miss. And the word miss was called a sin in an archery term. The only difference in the miss was how far off target you were. But a miss is a miss. He says, you do the same kind of stuff. You miss it. They miss it. It may be a different kind of miss, but it's a miss. And herein starts to lie one of the most poorly taught concepts in the Christian faith. I believe one of the most horribly taught concepts in the Christian faith. And this is it. God says, don't judge. Are you sure? Because we love to take one verse. Like Romans 2. Verse 1 that just said, don't judge that. And we make a whole theology off of it. Right? The Pentecostal church has, is famous for doing that. The Baptist church is famous for doing that. Right? Every church is famous for taking one thing and making it the crux of their whole theology. And many, you can talk to all kinds of people. God tells us don't judge. No, God says don't judge. No, he don't. Look at Proverbs 31.9. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Josh, you got to keep up, buddy. Plead the cause of the poor and needy. You can't get more clear than that. Judge righteously. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. I don't know how much clearer you can get in your theology when people, God says don't judge. What Bible are you reading? He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? There is a righteous judgment, and there is an unrighteous judgment. We who are of a spiritual mind of Christ are called to judge all things for the purpose of discerning what is of God 
what is not of God. It is not wrong for me to look at this act or this person and say, that's wrong. Or they're far from God. Because I can see that thing is not of God. I have to be able to judge the thing so that I can know whether or not I need to separate from the lifestyle. Because without the ability to judge it, you don't know what you can separate from. But what happens in an unrighteous judgment, which we're reading about today in Romans chapter 2, is when you set yourself apart according to, judge, to judging the obvious sin, you get in a comparison trap and you start to excuse yourself because you look at their obvious sin compared to your generalized morality. Well, look at how bad they got it and look at how most of my life is so good. We look at the, 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 the blatantly fake Christians, right? Well, look at what they're doing. They drinking and they playing on the praise team. While you gossiping about them drinking and playing on the praise team. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, they homosexuals. Well, you living together outside of marriage. It's in the same verse. One does not make one another worse or less, but he says, how are you going to point that out as if you are better and have nothing to look at when you're doing the same kind of thing? I know that's hard to swallow, but most truth is. Christians love to excuse themselves because of their gender morality. And they'll never confront their foolish ways because they're in a comparatively better place than obvious sin due to an unrighteous judgment. And the church gets caught in comparison traps. We love to compare ourselves with other houses of worship. Can you believe what they did? Well, look at what you're doing and look at what you're not doing. I have found myself getting in that trap over the years. And God's like, if you will focus more on you, maybe your light will shine bright that it will expose the dark places that are so obvious to your spirit man. Right? Oh. Paul says, when you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these same things. Well, don't forget, you should be punished too. You are not worthy to be spared no matter how moral you are. None of us are worthy. That's why he said, I am the one who makes you worthy. And we have to have this uh, mindset, if you will. We have to have this reality at the forefront of our mind that says, no matter how close I am to God, 
Nothing I have done, and no matter how good I get, and no matter how moral I get, none of it makes me worthy. He does. And because none of it makes me worthy, why do I think my morality excuses me of God? What more of me do you want? What more of me needs to die? But we lose focus on what more of me needs to die because we just need to go minister to the lost. We get so caught up in the world. Well, I can't believe that America elected this president. And I can't believe America. Yes, all legitimate concerns. But when you get so wrapped up in the fall of the world but won't take an inventory of yourself, Paul says, who the heck do you think you are? The only one that makes us worthy is the one who makes you worthy of a Passover for the judgment you deserve. Today, this weekend is recognized as that Palm Sunday and week of Passover. It's begun. We celebrate the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey with the palm branches being waved, celebrating him as king. What's funny, they celebrate him as king, and the very next thing he does is get into the temple and start tossing tables. Read it in Matthew. He's a king, tables tossing. And I believe that if we are the temple of God, maybe when we start recognizing that he is king, we'll get more obsessed with tossing over the tables in our temple. Than pointing out everyone's messed up tables. Okay. But we forget that when he came into Jerusalem, he was fulfilling that forever Passover. He says, we have been celebrating years and years and years that the, the, about this blood that was over a door to, 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 to pass over the, the killing of the firstborn child with the sacrificial lamb. And he's coming in saying, I am that forever lamb and I am that blood that's going to forever be your Passover of the death angel of your life. I am the one making you right. I am the one giving you your Passover or death. I am the one. Nothing that you have done and nothing that you could have ever do ever merits a Passover. But I am. I am. I am your Passover. I've made you right. He makes us worthy, and we cannot have an unrighteous comparison that gets us into a trap where we're so busy pointing out what they do that we never grow because we have a lack of seeing. Jesus actually spoke about this in a parable. Look at Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. You know, one one was a preacher. And the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. Y'all know that some of us have been in prayers like this or have thought it or you, or, well, I ain't going to say you know people like it because then that kind of contradicts the sermon, but <laughs> we've all been in that place. I've 
and pay my tithes and I go to church and I, I worship better than they do and I do this and I do that. This is exactly what the Pharisee is doing. But the tax collector in verse 13 stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the preacher, not the Pharisee, not the priest, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what did Paul say? He says, when you get into the comparison trap, you condemn yourself. Jesus says, you'll be humbled. When you get in this comparison trap, when you think nothing else about you has to change because you're looking at their sins compared to yours and, man, I'm so good. I'm not like all these other people. I don't have their issues. Your religion is turning people away from Jesus. That's a pretty big issue. He says, you are condemning, when you puff up yourself with this unrighteous judgment with comparison, making yourself blind to your own places that need to be reconciled to Christ, you're creating a trap for yourself where you're putting a demand on wrath, which presents an environment where you'll be humble and you'll be condemned to a place of, oh shoot, I'm not that great. Because we always think of you'll be condemned to, well, that means hell. No, 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 no. Let's get out of that for a second. He's talking to believers. You'll be condemned. Oh, does that mean I'm losing my salvation? Nope. This is not a theology about eternal life. This is talking about when you are living on the earth as a living, alive believer, you can get into a trap where you will bring about your own condemnation and be humble. What does that mean? You can get all of it right, and you can be moving up the ladder. But when you get to a place where you're not growing because you are on the trap of saying, I'm good because look at them and look at them and look at them, God says, I will show you exactly how unworthy you are. So I can put you in a place of seeing how much you actually need me. Is this good? Look at verses 2 and 3. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Anyone. Since you judge others for doing these things... Why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? You may not do the identical thing, but the conduct is the same. Paul says, just because you've got a lot of things right, don't you dare think for a second that you're an exception to the rule. What rule? You can't avoid judgment of the things you do. Now, here's some theology for you. And I didn't know that Justin was going to read it until after I did my message, but check out John chapter 5, verse 21. Just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges 
No one. What do churches teach? Judgment day, you're going to get before the Father. He's going to have a gavel and you're going to end heaven and hell. The Father judges no one. He has given who? Jesus. Absolute authority to judge. Why? Verse 23. So that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Because the Scripture says when you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. Because everything the Son is, everything Jesus displays is a representation of who the Father is because it's three as one. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Why do people fear the Father but not Jesus? Because you love the Jesus who saves you, but do you realize that this is also the Jesus who judges you? Father did that so Jesus gets the same honor. Because we'll fear the Father, but we don't fear the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is when we hear the, about the Father bringing down fire and floods and wrath, oh, we better get right for Jesus so that we don't die when, oh, you know, the end of the world, and oh, I'm scared of the Father. We fear the Father. But when Jesus says, love your enemy, you come up with excuses as to why you don't need to because you don't fear him. But the father says, well, that one who told you to love and bless those who persecute you, I've given him the authority to judge you so that you would fear him as much as my fire and wrath from heaven. And that Holy Spirit when you get that inkling, when the, when the Holy Spirit says, hey, you need to pray for that corrupt person that you see doing all those debaucherous things, and we say, no, nah, that, that, ain't, that ain't my ministry. You don't fear Holy Spirit because you claim three in one, but you only fear one part of the three. Because we paint the picture of Jesus just as the lamb, the love, Right? That's what we do. Jesus is the nice version. The Father is angry Father. And Jesus is love, love, love. His love is righteous judgment. So that we would honor everything he says to do. Why does Paul put such a weight on this area? Because he wants people, the people of God, to get rid of the thing they use to escape the reality of wrath. So even we as believers have the light bulb go off that we need to seek him in all we do instead of thinking because we're mostly good, let's just focus on what everyone else has got wrong. I, I, I get weary of people who, when I talk to, you know everything. When I can't teach you anything, I don't care if you, Billy Graham, there's something wrong with you. 
when you got all the answers? Because we love to put ourselves on this pedestal of all-knowing. I get weary of people like that. Because we never like to say, Lord, what more of me needs to die? When I, when I hear people say, you, you, oh, Lord, give me. When we start to say things like, I'll never have patience for that. Well, who the heck do you think you are that you think you are someone that's above a fruit called patience? That's not my ministry. Who the heck do you think you are to qualify what's your ministry or not? It's not, do I have the patience to deal with this thing? It's a fruit of true relationship of let me submit myself to the honor of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means you should have a fruit of patience to do whatever comes in your way despite whether or not it's in your natural makeup or not. But we get in the comparison trap. We do it with sin. We do it with goodness. Well, that's you. That's me. Right? And we have different gifts. We have different abilities. We have different strengths. But we love to get in this trap of comparison. And it never gets a self-evaluation of, Lord, what more of me needs to die so that more of you can take over? And we get that. You know, we always, we've said this over the years because we did a fast and it changed everything about relentless. Decrease for increase. We get that term wrong. Less of me, more than him. It's not the idea of less of you more than him as far as God doesn't need you. It's less of befalling you less of the fallen nature of me and more of who he wants me to be because more of him is displayed in more of the true me. The world needs the true me that I haven't even seen yet as a display of who he is. So it's not, Lord, you just do it. No, it's less of me and more of me. Less of the fallen me and more of the true me. And the only way you get more of the true me is don't fall into the comparison trap. Because when you get into the true you, the one that the Lord says in Revelation, I have given you a new name, and you'll find out that new name when you enter into the gates. You know why you don't find out that new name, I believe? Because you've got a lot of work to do to get to it. <laughs> Die to yourself. Take up your cross daily. Does it make sense? We get in this comparison trap. We don't start to get stuff put before God. And then verse 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you... Not God, 
you. You're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When you get in the comparison trap, you become stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sins simply because you see no need to. All you see is how, how much you fall out in the spirit. How much you get lost in worship. How much you seek God in all you do. And the Lord's like, yeah, well, I see all the secret places. I see what your eyes go to. I see what your ears are given to. I know what your tongue says. And the scripture says, your tongue and what you say steers the whole body. He says, I, I see all that. I'm not impressed by the accolades of what you think is, you know, acceptable worship for me. You know what acceptable worship is for God? I want all of you. You spend so much time falling into this trap by focusing on everyone else. He says you store up punishment for yourself because you allow the unright things to remain. And then when a day of anger comes, don't you want there to be a little that's unrighteous? You're storing up the things for punishment that should be being dealt with. Think about it. You've got the authority to store up unrighteous things for punishment. That also means you've got the authority to make sure none of it gets stored up. Yeah. Well, God's going to deal with me on judgment day. Why would you live like that? God knows what I've done. I'm going to have to answer for it. Well, actually, Jesus is, Jesus is your judge. And he says, if you repent, if you change the way you think and turn the other way, I'll remember your sins no more. So you can store them up all you want and I'll judge them or you can walk away from them and when you come to me, I won't know what the heck you're talking about. You see, that's how good he, he says, I'm going to judge all the stuff, but you get to decide what's put on the table when you see me. That's, that's how good he is. Ah! Ah! I don't know what that is, but... Ah! Verse 6, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. Everyone will be judged according to what they have done. Not just unbelievers. Not just the really bad, obvious sinners. And then Paul defines and qualifies what according to what they have done means. Because it's not about just works and doing. Because even, 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 even evil people do good things. What is he talking about? Look at verse 7. He'll give eternal life to those who keep on doing good. Because he's got to qualify that. Because a lot of people do good. 
seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers, but he'll pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. He says, there are those who do good who, number one, seek after the glory and honor and eternal living in God, but then there are those who do good who live for themselves, refuse to obey truth, and live lives of wickedness. Wickedness defined as anything apart from God's ways. So when you get in the, com- and when you get in the comparison trap, it's really easy to forget to seek and live. It's really easy to forget and seek. So you start to live for yourself and puff up your righteousness. You, you forget the seeking part, so you start to look at how great you are. I'm going to go ahead and let you know. I'm not going to give you details, but God's pouring out ridiculous favor on this house right now. Like stupid favor. Like stuff that I hope I get to tell everyone about in the coming weeks. I just can't right now. I just can't. I just, just, just pray. Just, Lord, let it be done. When this, when this thing got put in my, in, on my plate, I went home and the first thing I did, Lord, I am not worthy of this. We are not worthy of this. Let us steward well what you see fit to give us. Because the danger is, look at how good we've done. Everyone else is socially distancing. Everyone else is close. I don't know what I'm doing. Everyone, everyone else is closing their church up. I'm puffing up myself, right? Everyone, it's really easy to do that. But if I'm reading the parable right, what God loves is humble themselves, Lord. We are we we know that we don't deserve this. So so let us steward it well according to your will. Right? Verse 9, there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. First, the Jew, and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. For the Jew first, and also the Gentile. You see, we have two reminders. Trouble and calamity is promised for those doing evil. Glory and honor and peace for all who do good. And Paul reminds us, you love to claim, see, we are the people of God. We love to talk about how we get the rewards first. Well, the Lord blesses his people, and you're going to get the rewards. But in the scripture I just read, we are first in line for rewards. And we also first in line for reaping the. Because when you first in line, you, you first in line to reap what you sow, no matter what the reaping is. So he says, you better not get in the comparison trap. Because when you start to puff yourselves up with your own righteousness, you're going to be the first ones to reap the rewards of it. While the evil people ain't getting the rewards of 
horrible things that you're reaping right now, and then you wonder, why do bad things happen to good people? Because you first in line, you hypocrite. All right. And it's not just reaping in heaven. We're talking about reaping right now. Verse 11. God does not show favoritism. When a Gentile sin, they'll be destroyed. Even though they never had God's written law. Hmm. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in the sight. Paul says everyone is judged based off the same thing. Obeying law. Now I want to qualify this for a minute because the law doesn't save us. Okay? So I'm going to talk about it. It don't matter if you read it or if you never read it. We're all on the same playing field. God is not partial to those who claim Jesus versus those who claim Satan. He says that there is no follow through, then there is no distinction. You can't claim my name, but your life don't look no different. Many will say they know me. I'll say to you, I never knew you. Your follow-through shows what you believe. Keeping the law does not save you, but it certainly indicates whether or not you actually be in the one believe in the one who does. Because watch what happens in verse 14. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without even hearing it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts from their own conscience and thoughts, either because they accuse them or tell them what they're doing right. You cannot claim ignorance as an excuse when it comes to how he judges your life because even those who have never read the law, who have never read the Bible, have its truth written on their hearts and therefore have a conscience to obey it or reject it. At Island's home campus, we have a home campus every Tuesday. We're getting about 20 people every Tuesday night. There was a guy there, he was a missionary growing up. And he said him and his dad went into this tribe with Indians. Um, I, I'm not sure if he meant Indians in Asia or native. I'm not sure what he meant, but he said they grew up and they went to this uh, lost tribe of Indians. And he went to this tribe. I talked about this in men's group. And they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of Christianity. They never had a Bible. But they were following the Ten Commandments. They believed in a three-in-one God. They, when, when they, 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 they worship by, by breaking a bread with communion. They, they, would, they, they would go from, uh, they said when they, when they went by each other's houses, 
it was customary that when they passed by a house, they would never pass a house without stopping by to fellowship before going forward with their journey. You know what Acts 2 calls that? And they went, they fellowshiped daily, and they met by house by house. The very makeup of the church was even written on the hearts of these people who never even read how the church started in Acts. Because God is not contained by the written testament to the truth. And he says, and you're going to write, you're going to make up a comparison system of that. The Pharisees tried to get Jesus by using this. They asked some questions. And if you read through Matthew, actually, from Palm Sunday and Passover through the cross, when they started asking Jesus questions, finally, it says in Scripture, they just stopped asking him because he got it all right. They were dumbfounded because they were like, let me, let me give you all a little history about back in the day. Because back then, at a certain age, you either went to learn to be a Pharisee, read the scriptures, or you became a tradesman, which means you didn't have any knowledge of the word unless you were taught it in the temple. You think Jesus became a temple priest? He, was an, he, he, he became a, a carpenter. And they couldn't figure out, how does this carpenter know the stuff that we taught all these people? Because with the Son of Man, just like you, it was written. And when you start to ignore what's written in your heart, to walking in sin and rebellion, the truth becomes more blurred. And it happens in the comparison trap. Because you talk about all you know, but you'll never come correct because you won't follow the law that tries to speak to your inward man that God has written in your very makeup. And you wonder why you're tired because your inward man is exhausted with an inward fight that you've become unaware of because you focus on everything else but what God is trying to speak to you with. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't know why I'm tired. Maybe it's because I've been working. Do you really think that that's all that's going on? The Bible's clear that there's a war going on in a, in a realm that we do not see. And you think the only credit to your exhaustion is your work schedule? Maybe if you submitted yourself to God more and got out, oh, my schedule is just so crammed and I work from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. and I don't have much time. Shut up. <laughs> the Apostle Paul funded his own ministry by making tents all day and then when he got done he didn't take a nap. He went ministering to people. You're tired because there is an inward spiritual thing going on that God is saying, wake up. You don't think you need to minister because you compare your work life to others' lack thereof? Right? That's what we do. That's, that's what we do. 
It's not just comparison to how good I am. It's look how much I work. Look how much I do. Look how long I've been at the church. Look how new I am at the church. Compare, 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 compare. What is God telling you? God speaks to me. Obviously not. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry, but if this is offensive, but at some point, You've got to hear some truth. I've got to hear it. Verse 16, and this is the message I proclaim. Some versions say this is the gospel that I say. That's a bold man, Paul talking. This is my gospel. That the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus will judge everyone's secret life. He knows all the stuff going on that you are blind to because you're in a comparison trap. Ephesians 5.27, all that he does in us is designed to make us a mature church for his pleasure until we become a source of praise to him. Glorious, radiant, beautiful, holy, without fault or flaw. He doesn't want a church with faults and flaws. He wants a spotless bride. He loved us so much that he made us right and gave us a way to walk in the identity of it. And we walk in other ways when we have an unrighteous judging. We get in the comparison trap, beauty fades, and we reap corruption. He says, stop, stop getting in this comparison trap because I've come to make you spotless and you're just getting spotty. And I'm so patient with you, and you're taking advantage of it so you can scoff at others when you should simply seek me. Not just getting in my presence, but coming in my presence approved as spotless. Right? Galatians 3. I'm getting there. I hope this has been okay tonight. Before the, way of, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so as to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave, free, male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then the next chapter in verses 4 through 5, it says this, But when the right time came, God sent a son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us to his very own children. We are adopted sons and daughters of the king, of God. Law was a guardian to make us right until we could actually be made right. It guarded us to right living, but it never made us righteous. 
And he says, now that you've been made right, it's like you're putting on new clothes as God's people. You're no longer separated by your culture. You're no longer separated by anything. You're unified in your new clothing. You're one. You're all Israel. I adopted you all. The law doesn't make you right. So don't get into a comparison trap by checking off laws that you have right and they have wrong. I heard a teaching on, some of you may not, may not get this, but it was a teaching on hermeneutics, the way to study the scripture. And it said, basically the Western church, America, We've gotten everything wrong compared to the rest of the world. You know, you ever ask those questions like, maybe not everything wrong, but you ever ask those questions like, why do we see healings in Africa, but in the U.S. it's like only in a few revivals? Because they have a different perspective. In hermeneutics, you simply base your belief system off what is the most simplistic verse to start off with. And all of the, the, the theologians, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all the Western civilization theologians, all base it off of a, a guy named Augustine. And his simplest verse was basically separating sheep and goats. What makes you right and what makes you not right. And the rest of the world, they base it off of we all are alive in Christ. You know what's wrong with the church here? We're still trying to get the sheep and the goat theology. What makes us right? And the rest of the world's like, y'all still on that? Jesus. Jesus makes you right. And you're still trying to figure out how can I get all, well, I, I've got to get myself correct before God so that I can walk in all that I am. He's done it. The law doesn't need to guide you into that. He's made you right. So why do we have the law if he's made us right? It's written on your hearts to show you when you are not walking in him. In other words, a new identity of righteousness has been placed on you. Now get yourself in line with your new identity. In other words, why aren't you accepting your new clothes that were bought for you at a price that you can never obtain? The law couldn't buy the clothes. The lamb did. And you won't put on your new clothes because you're still trying to buy them with the law. Is this? He says, seek me so I can show you where you're not accepting your new clothes that you could have never earned by the law. And you've got to understand that for what he closes out with Romans chapter 2 in these next few verses. Verses 17 through the rest of the, the book, the chapter. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law. 
and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what's right because you've been taught the law. You're convinced that you're a guide for the blind. You're a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach the children the ways of God. For you're certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? Easter. You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it? saying, like, take an honest evaluation of the mixture of yourselves before you start condemning how bad the world, you, 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 like, you love to talk about how bad witches got it when all of their witchcraft is infiltrated in your temple. <laughs> Woo! No wonder the scriptures say that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. No wonder the scriptures say the people not of God blaspheme God because of the people of God. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. If you don't obey the law, you're no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. In other words, what good is it if you claim Christ if nothing about your life looks like you claimed him? If the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but y'all don't do a thing with it. You don't obey it. You're not a true Jew just because you're born of Jewish parents. You're not a believer just because you're born in a Christian home. You're not a believer just because you go to church. You're not a believer because you fill out a salvation card once in your life. You're not a believer because you got a gospel tract and said a prayer at a park. Or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew, now Jew because we're no longer Jew or Gentile, right? We are the people of God. So look at it like this. No, a true believer is one whose heart is right with God. Not who's checked off all the boxes, not who's gone through the comparison trap of, have I got all the laws right? No, 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 no. It's who's got his heart right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. It's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. When it all comes down to it, a changed heart leads to a life that reflects the law. Not let me get the law right to convince people of a changed heart that has truly not been changed. Like, because this is what we do as the people of God. We try to do the right things and we hate it because your heart's not changed. You're just doing. That's why he said, that's why... Like, when, when, when the Lord talks about tithes and offerings in the New Testament, he says, give with joy. 
Because if it's not coming from your heart, it's worthless for you to give anything. That's why he says when you pray, pray earnestly. Don't just recite the Lord's Prayer because you have it written and you don't really know what its makeup is or how to pray. It's a template, not a recitation. I don't even know that's a word. Is that a word? Okay, good. When it comes down to the comparison trap, you've run from the heart issue, which should be baptized in him, a heart fully immersed in love with God. And when your heart is fully immersed in God, out of that flows all the ways and all the desires of God because he's written the law on your hearts. So when you're immersed in him, the law is simply a reflection of inward change. Not get the law right to make me changed. Because he's giving you a new body, a new soul. He's giving you the new clothes. I'll close with this verse. Jeremiah 29, 13. You'll seek me and you'll find me. When? You search for me with all your heart. Amen. Let's stand.